3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to Monday Breakfast and thanks for choosing to start your week here on 3CR with us. It's great to see you and I'm Alice. I hope you've had a great weekend and you're taking care of yourself, your neighbours and your loved ones right now. And so first up on today's show, I'm going to be speaking with Sarah, a teacher from the UK who's currently teaching at a British international school outside of the UK about the extent of the exam results disaster that has recently swept the UK and what that has meant for students. Following that, at around 7.30am, Ella speaks to Dr Rachel Burgin about the law which prevents sexual assault survivors publicly speaking about their experience. And to round the show off, at 8am, Claudia brings us a story from northwestern Australia where a local language centre is working hard to revive critically endangered Indigenous languages in their communities. It's a biggie today, it's a pretty big show, so let's get stuck in and to kick us off and wake us up this morning, we have Black Rock Band with If It Was Me. Back on my homeland, a place of peace, where you feel the cool breeze.
an aboriginal man I think you're mad and start to think it's fine To let the river die Because your money and your power is more important than the people Your greed is your church, your lies are your steeple You wanna talk about life, let's talk about the water The island river, the connection to the culture White human race, different clans And you're caught in dance, break the spirit of the land And you're holding the one thing that the money shouldn't buy Why the people suffer and the dreaming dies, yeah If it was me, I would stand up for my land If it was me, I would stand up for my You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks for staying with us. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Sarah, a teacher from the UK who works at a British international school outside of the UK. Recently, a decision was made that GCSE, AS and A-level students would not be taking exams. These will have been the exams their teachers had been preparing them for for years. The exams that as a child you're told can essentially make or break you. I mean, the pressure is enormous. Your future becomes dictated by these and whether that is true or not, it certainly feels like it at the time. And it's an incredibly stressful time for students. COVID-19 restrictions has changed everyone's day-to-day life and for students in the UK it has meant no face-to-face learning and no exams. But the question remained that without exams how would the students be marked fairly and how could they still plan their future education, their internships if they were to choose that direction or just their next steps after they leave school. Well the examining boards and their and the government put their heads together and ultimately the outcome was an algorithm that would decide the fate of these 15 to 18 year olds. It would leave 40% of students in the UK with marks that had been considerably downgraded from their predicted grades and the nation was in uproar. Today Sarah is going to be talking to us from the teacher's perspective, a frontliner somebody who had to respond quickly to the new plans set ahead for them and ultimately had to be there for students when it all fell apart. I asked Sarah if she could take us from the beginning. What was the decision around exams in the UK and what were the steps that teachers had to take shortly after this decision was made? The decision was made that exams could not proceed due to the corona situation the covid-19 situation and therefore the recommendation was that 
teachers and schools would predict grades for the students. And these predicted grades would be based off of a number of different areas. So for instance, mock exam results, classwork, teacher interpretation of them within the class, any additional testing that they've done, um, their previous grades for like A-level and AS. And it was kind of very wishy-washy. They didn't give you the best guidelines of what you needed. They didn't tell us what evidence was going to be needed, what evidence was going to be collected. And there wasn't much guidance in terms of, oh, okay, you're on the right track. Um, it was just very much like gather the evidence to prove that you say evidence are you talking about that the students like own work yeah so like the mock grades their own work the mixture in terms of that and there wasn't much guidance when it came to those things okay so you had to gather evidence based on the children's previous work that they had to yeah but there were no so guidelines work, yeah so any work that you had done in school that you had but then also the problem is is most by by the time that they came out with these recommendations no one was in school and the students had all of their work so it was it was very difficult because you then have been to talk to the students to get them to send their work to you as a teacher but they're also doing it for all their other subjects and then it questions the validity of the work because the students have got it at home so a lot of it was to do with you, you can't submit any evidence or you or the evidence you gather you must be a hundred percent certain that this piece is a genuine piece and the student hasn't then looked at like the mark scheme and stuff like that so does that um, mean that some potentially some students would have had a lot of evidence submitted saying yeah. that they have they have done x y and z but then other students to, from whatever circumstances might not have had as much yeah so already yeah. there are disparities in the evidence like with students and what the work exactly. they've done some students had lost their work some students had lost their books some students obviously do it at a different rate so it's very difficult in terms of that because you don't actually assess them when they're doing their classwork and then mock exams and any assessments could be used as well but then for instance in the country that i'm at a lot of schools do their mock exams in march and we were so we uh, the schools were closed in march so there were many schools in my area that didn't get didn't get the chance to do the mock exams so therefore it meant that we didn't have mock data so we had term one exam data but we didn't have mock data which is the most beneficial in terms of that but this is again this was when it came down to the examples there was no real guidance of what you should be collecting what is classed as evidence they gave you some brief outlines of roughly what could be seen as evidence but there wasn't no directive in terms of this is what we want from you um, and this is how much we want from you so again it was very difficult because you you need to then try and work out how much to collect to show that this is what the grade this is the grade the students should get and how long did the teachers have to gather this evidence for their students? We had roughly a month, um, but it was quite a, a difficult process because, again, it's a lot of information you're gathering. You're, you're, you're having to rely solely on the students in returning some of their work so that you've got this evidence. And then we obviously wanted it in before 
so that we could review it as an SLT team, as the senior leaders, to review all the evidence of the students and the quality of it. So, for instance, has it been marked? Has it been graded? Have we got similar pieces for all the students? So, if all the students are taking all the students in biology, have they all got the same similar kind of standards of evidence pieces of evidence to showcase that right those that are predicted a stars have all got similar evidences those that have predicted a's are also like so you so you're trying to make sure that the level's correct as well and and it it was just very arduous very lengthy process because it was so important that we got this right and so when, when you submitted your evidence to the exam boards, what, what happened to that evidence? Well, this is the incredibly annoying thing, um, is that obviously we collected it. It was a very um, big task for the teachers, for the whole school. And then you submit just the grades and the ranking of the students. So part of the predictions is you had to rank the students in order within their grade bracket. So any A stars that you that you predicted, you had to rank the A stars from one to five if you predicted. So even five. though you may have six kids that are all going to be A stars, you need to put them in order of who is the best A star, who is the worst A star, theoretically. Yeah. And you have to do yeah. that with each group. So A stars, A, B, C, D, E. Yes. So you have to go through and do that for every like every grade about bracket so the a the a stars the a's the b's the c's etc and it all is you number them and rank them within that boundary um and that's all you submit so you submit the grade and the ranking so the predicted grade and the ranking of the students and that is the only thing that you submit to the exam boards and then they then contact you if they want to have the evidence so well, the problem is, is the way they formulated the results meant that they didn't make allowances for whether you had a strong cohort or a weak cohort and you had evidence for this. So, so my school also submitted evidence that we had a very strong cohort. What's a cohort? Um, because, so that's the um, students, that's the student in that year group. So it's the cohort of students. So, so we had external data to prove this, which we also sent in as evidence but yeah so they just asked for the predicted grades and the ranking and then after they asked for those two things then they would contact you if they wanted evidence so they only wanted evidence for 12 of our students six from one subject six from another subject so we sent that evidence to them as well um, they didn't contact us about any other students they how many students did you submit for so we submitted for like the total number of students were is roughly about just under a hundred, but then obviously they've got multiple subjects as well. So you're looking at multiple subjects that we submitted as well. And um, in the UK, when everyone got their results a couple of weeks ago now, it was mm -hmm. an incredibly controversial moment because mm -hmm. of how the data worked against students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And, yeah. and since then, it's been overturned, which has been great. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what has what specifically happened with that data and how it affected those students? 
they used a statistical standardization algorithm which on paper sounded fantastic so the example that we use we spoke to them after the results came out before the changes were made and um they discussed very much so that the all the examples in the uk got together thought this um, algorithm would work went to the government the government approved it and they thought excellent so part of the process was they looked at the previous grades from each school for the last three years didn't take into account anything in terms of what their current cohorts performance is like and the history of the performance of the cohort they were just looking at the history of the school so um, so students weren't being looked at individually they were just being graded on how well their school had performed previously yes, yes. and obviously if you're looking at the previous three years there was especially in the uk there were a ch- there was a change to a lot of exams because they changed the exams so naturally you would have had a drop or a rise within those three years and then they also changed to the number system in the uk so the grading from one to nine which again makes the chain which makes the, the change so whether you can trust the three years previous for each school it it, it it never really works because you have to take a cohort individually so anyway so they looked at the data for the last three years and then they worked out what grades each school should have for each subject so for instance if a school submitted five a stars but their history shows they should only have got two a stars then they would look at the five a stars and the and the ranking then became very important and this is what was also quite upsetting is that they didn't actually tell you how important the ranking was so they just said you just rank them and that's fine so a school would have five a stars the examples think that they're only entitled to two so the ones that are ranked first and second achieve those a stars then the one that was, say, third, say that the school could only have one A, that one, that third one in the A star would get an A. And then the fourth would go down to a B, etc. So then that's just the A stars. So then you look at the ones that are in the A category and they already can't start at an A because the A's have been taken out by the A stars. And the A's, A stars are already on B's. Exactly. So the A's would instantly start B's and etc. So the students that that were either, that were ranked lower or had lower predicted grades were ultimately just getting kept pushed back and further back and further back, which therefore meant that the students. So if because you could genuinely predict someone a C and they deserve a C, but because they were one of the the last in the C bracket and you've moved everyone down, they could end up with an ungraded or an F. So this algorithm really didn't take any student's individualism into consideration at all? No, not at all. And they didn't look at any of the evidence. If you're going to move a student down, sometimes by three, four, five grades, then realistically you should ask the school for that evidence because Mm. you need to to prove that that's a fair movement. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and thanks for tuning in. We're speaking with Sarah, a teacher from the UK working in an international British school outside of the UK at the moment. We've been speaking about the exam grading disaster that swept the UK in the recent weeks, 
which was signed off by the government and enforced by the examining bodies. After GCSE, AS and A-level students were told they could not sit their exams this year, an algorithm was brought in to decide their fate and it went horribly wrong for many, many, many students. It's not a conspiracy to say that in the UK, white middle class areas economically are doing far better and so are their schools. We find the schools in lower social economic places are less well funded, have less resources and students suffer because of this academically. I asked Sarah how schools across the UK in wealthier places and in lower social economic places have been affected by the algorithm. So again, it would be because you're looking at the history of the school, if the history of the school has done phenomenally well and then they have ranked their students fairly, but they've got quite a, a low achieving cohort, those students would have gone up grades. Whereas the ones in, in schools that necessarily haven't done very well or had a particularly bad year on one of the three years, then that impacts it because it's not taking that into consideration. Um, and that's the problem. If you look at the history of the school, and, and it can be a fair reflection, but most a, a lot of schools improve every year, even only by a couple of percentages, but there's still improvement, and they don't look at that. And if you're looking at schools that, for instance, are in um, areas where the schools haven't, haven't performed very well or are starting to perform much better, then you're not taking that into consideration as well. And that's, that's the problem. If you've, got a, if you've got a school that is a very strong academic school that has had very good, st strong academic um, past, then the students probably would have done very well because they've got that there, but you're not actually, but then the students, who are from areas where the schools need a lot more development, that, that is also mm. impacted in that sense. Mm. And so the kids got their exam results and there was uproar, I think it's yeah. fair to say, um, and they have been overturned and they have been marked differently now. So can you take us through what kind of happened after the children got their results and um, and how that got overturned yeah so I work at an international British school not in the UK we internationally you get your results just before the the UK so we got our GCSE and our A-level results before them and there was already a lot of speculation about these results. By this stage Scotland had already changed their system and had gone to teacher prediction, predicted grades and there was a and then they had just announced that they were going to make changes to the a, the way that you the a levels were going to be results were going to be given so then we got our results and the example that we use which is an international example have nearly 950,000 students due to the exams for this year and they took less than 50% of the teachers predictions so you're looking at nearly half a million students who haven't got the predicted grades so instantly every school who uses that exam board is on a is is, is on a back foot because <clears throat> the likelihood of of you having a complete cohort that have got their predicted grades is very very slim 
So this, the and there was no pre-warning to the schools. So the results went out and it was instantaneous with the onslaught of complaints and students who had university places revoked. Um, and it was, it, it was, it was a dire situation and you felt for these students so much because they had worked hard and, and they were, it was so much, it was such a worrying situation. They, they did deserve the grades that were predicted to them. And some of them had gone down by four grades and they can't understand it. And the exam boards were saying, if you've got a problem, you need to speak to the school. The appeals process was very much, if you appeal, they're going to look at the standardisation, the statistical standardisation algorithm, which had just been proven not to work. And they weren't, and the exam boards weren't recognising the fact that this, this was a very dire situation. On top of the fact that they weren't recognising this, they weren't making decisions quick enough. They also so took it offline, didn't they? So that you couldn't appeal. Suddenly they took the yeah. ability yeah. to appeal offline. So people were then left yeah. actually not able to appeal the grades. Exactly. And as a school, we emailed our exam board. We rang the exam board for guidance because we were just having so many parent issues and student issues. We had students cry. And also what you've got to remember is the schools officially are meant to be shut because of COVID, but as an SLT member, we had to go into school and we had to meet with parents and we had to meet with students because there, there was devastation and no one understood it. And they're trying to get answers from us, but the exam boards were never giving us answers. So as a school, we were put in a very difficult situation, the same as the parents and the students, because they don't understand it. And the best that we could say was, we hope that there will be an, a decision like what's happened in Scotland, where they change the, the exams, but we can't guarantee that. And if not, we will appeal as a school to everyone that was downgraded. You had them parents wanting to complain about teachers, wanting to contact the teachers, wanting to question the predicted grades. We were told we not to give out the predicted grades, not to give out the rankings. And then almost overnight, the example said, no, you can give out the predicted grades. And this was before they made the, the announcement of the new grades. Um, so it was just, it was very chaotic and very distressing. And now they have gone with the teacher's predicted grades unless the student was upgraded and do you think that people are happy with the outcome and with with the resolution here do you think students well, are it's difficult because a lot of students will then be blaming the teacher because if they're not happy with their grade and that's what's happened is we've now got teachers are very vulnerable to to abuse, I should think. I should think also vulnerable to abuse from parents and yeah. mm -hmm. students alike. And, and, and we have, we have, we have received that um, already because. And the thing is, is you can't predict everyone the top grades, and that's what they don't understand. And there's a lot of parents that why is my student not getting this grade where is this student got that um so since they've changed this we have then also had a lot of parents questioning why their student wasn't given top grades and then again the appeals process is very 
limited in terms of because again they should be allowed to appeal if they're not happy with their with the predicted grade from the teacher but the only reason you can appeal is if you believe there was malpractice or if the school believes there was a mistake we know that our predictions are the best that we could have done at that time and are very fair and then in terms of malpractice I, I don't think you've put teachers in such a difficult situation to then appeal and say that you're then going to investigate teachers or you're going to investigate the school again leaves leaves there so much uncertainty and that's that's the difficulty as well it's a very difficult situation and I think it's, it's going to impact those students in this cohort for years to come but then also if you look forward to what's going to happen next year a lot of schools are not going back a lot of countries are not going back to formal schooling until the covid issue is resolved what's going to happen with these students some of these students have again they have they've missed large chunks of their gcse as a level courses how how are they going to be impacted so now we've we've had this issue and the resolution has happened and whether that's the correct thing is up for debate but now you've got to also now think of these this new set of students who will be due to take their exams what's going to happen to them because they've missed so much of the course so much of the face-to-face -face teaching and as much as distance learning has been there the success of it is also very up in the air I think it sounds like, unfortunately, in the, the next years to come and the, and the year previously, the students have been almost the distant learning algorithm guinea pigs. Um, yeah. And they're going to feel the full brunt of all the mistakes that, um, that are going to are bound to happen. A hundred percent. And it's, it's a very, it, it's a very difficult situation. You feel for the students so much because they don't deserve that and they have probably been hit the hardest in terms of this is going to impact their future. You're listening to 3CR. Thanks for sticking with us. That was Sarah, a teacher from the UK, and we were speaking about the exam grade disaster that has swept the UK in recent weeks. If you missed any of this interview, you can catch up online at 3cr.org.au and that goes for any interview that you hear today on the show so do go online if you want to catch up you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio to enable change we need to show broad community support show your support for walking and cycling in the city of yarra by appearing as a champion on the streets alive website representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, 
the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR.
That was Don't Call Again from TK Mazda, featuring Carrie Foe. In February this year, changes to the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act were introduced, making it almost impossible for survivors of sexual assault to speak publicly about their experiences using their real names. These laws, described by many as gag laws, apply to survivors whose offenders have been found guilty or whose cases are still proceeding and are irrespective of when the crime occurred. Any sexual assault survivor found guilty of breaking the new laws could face up to four months in jail and fines in excess of $3,000. Media outlets face potential prosecution and fines of over $8,000. The consequences of this kind of censorship are far-reaching, both for individual survivors who say the laws re-traumatise and add further shame, and for the public discourse around assault, which plays a vital role in furthering our understanding and shaping culture. Let Us Speak is a campaign pushing for changes to these laws, so on Saturday, I spoke with Dr. Rachel Bergen, a member of the team behind the campaign. Rachel is Chair of Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy and a lecturer of law at Swinburne University of Technology. A heads up to listeners, while we don't go into detail, we do discuss cases of sexual assault. I started by asking Rachel to break down these new laws and explain how they came about. So... How the law, these laws came about is an interesting part of the narrative because um, they, the government was, was actually trying to address another problem, another significant problem that was faced by sexual assault survivors or rape survivors, and particularly those who, um, who are the survivors in cases where there is a suppression order in place. In place. Now, as I think many of us are very aware in the sort of... Um, from the, the Pell case, uh, Victoria has a very um, unhealthy relationship with suppression orders. Um, and this is particularly because there was no way for a survivor who uh, was, was, a, was a survivor in a case with a suppression order to, to reverse or undo the effect of that suppression order even after the case was over. So they could basically never speak out using their own names or identify publicly as being the survivor in, in those cases. So the government were trying to make some clear steps for survivors in that position to take, uh, for them to, to you know, have the, um, the legal right, you know, re retain the legal right to, um, to speak out using their own names. So, so that was the issue that was, that was trying to be addressed by the government, and we support that uh, the, and the reforms around those areas. However, in doing that, what they've done is they've uh, made that problem, uh, well, they've extended the problem to all survivors. So they were fixing a problem for a small few and ended up subjecting the majority to some unnecessary barriers. In particular, for survivors of sexual violence to speak out using their own name in the media today, they need to apply for a court order. Um, a, this is an incredibly costly and timely uh, process and likely requires legal representation, uh, which obviously, of course, many people, in fact, potentially most people, don't have um, access to. And uh, it's also certainly a, a potentially traumatic process um, to go back through, you know, the courts um, for, for a survivor of sexual violence who, who may have had to endure cross-examination and, and other really horrific um, things as part of their the process of, of, of making their case um, in court. And um, could you speak a little about the importance of survivors of sexual assault being in charge of their own narrative, um, particularly from your perspective as a researcher? 
Yeah, so this is incredibly important. It's so crucial that survivors can can be the ones who are in control of the narrative, who are the ones, particularly because um, in the court context and in a legal in the legal context, they are not seen as victims or survivors. They're seen as complainants uh, and relegated really to the role of a witness to their own. Um, rape or assault. Um, so, so speaking out in the media or, or speaking publicly generally is hugely empowering for survivors who want to sort of, you know, retain the control of the story. Um, it's also, it also has huge impacts for society. So it helps us to understand the realities of the lived experience of sexual violence. It helps us to challenge rape myths and stereotypes. Um, so so it, there's effects at you know, an individual level, but also at a societal level uh, that, that, that this law uh, really prohibits. And um, have we seen any examples of people who have been charged under these laws, people who have spoken out about their experience publicly? Um, we haven't yet, and that's because um, the, the legislation was introduced relatively quietly in February of this year. Um, most media organisations weren't even aware that this law had been changed and thus uh, continued to operate under the previous legislation, which allowed them to identify survivors with consent. So um, we hadn't seen its effect yet uh, playing out, but it was likely that in the future uh, we would. And certainly, you know, this, ca- this issue came to light um, when a survivor tried to speak out in the media and was not able to do so because the the media organization could not uh, could not do so without a court order so it was really beginning to show its teeth if you will um, when we decided to raise the issue with um, with Jill Hennessy the attorney general uh, in Victoria and let her know that this was having impacts on survivors abilities to, to speak in the media and so you're saying the changes in the law seem to be more of a unintentional oversight? <laughs> uh, it's a compl- that's a complicated question because it, I think it depends what perspective you, you take on it. The government have been really uh, trying to, to, to tie this up as a simple drafting error and they have largely attributed, to, tr- attributed it to a one-word error. So as part of the legis- in part of the legislation it says, um, you know, a survivor of a sexual assault case that uh, has concluded and resulted in a conviction can't speak without a court order and without, you know, or they can't, you know, they can't be published without a court order and consent. So, um, the, the, in practice, that means a, a media organisation would need to obviously have the consent of the survivor and also a, uh, a court order to, to run a story about a convicted uh, rapist, naming a convicted rapist and their survivor. So in that instance, uh, the government is saying, well, that's a one-word error. It should say a court order or the consent of the survivor. However, even if the government had uh, had actually legislated the or there instead, and, and you know, supposedly that drafting error didn't exist, the legislation, the changes to legislation would still gag some survivors. In particular, it would gag survivors who um, who have still have uh, proceedings ongoing before the courts, and this includes appeals. Um, this includes, you know, any sort of pre-trial issues. So, for example, the sisters who are trying to extradite Malka Leifer from um, Palestine would be um, 
would would be would remain gagged by that legislation. So it, it, the drafting error issue has been is, is simply a party line, uh, and it's 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 what they're trying to to write it off as. But it is more complicated than a simple mistake. There are some elements of the legislation that do seem um, deliberate. We need to wait and see what the what the government do with their reforms. And when can we expect to hear from the government? Um, have you gained any headway so far in getting these laws reformed? Well, so far the government have committed to um, reforming this legislation. So just yesterday, uh, Friday the uh, what was it? Friday the 28th of, of August, they uh, released a, a statement saying that they are committed to fast-tracking these reforms. However, again, we haven't seen them commit to um, any you know, any clarity around what elements of the law they will be changing. And do we have any idea of a timeline of when it might happen? No idea of a timeline yet, except for the fact that they've said that they will fast track it. So, uh, you know, we would expect by the end of the year that would mean. Um, but certainly we, we do need more clarity now because survivors are affected by this today, including, um, you know, clergy abuse victims who have previously been speaking out for years, such as the Ridsdale survivors uh, and, and also many other survivor advocates who, who work in this space and, and need, need clarity on this law urgently. And could you tell us a bit about the Let Us Speak campaign? Um, how did it start out? So the Let, Her, Let Us Speak campaign is the sister or sibling campaign to Let Her Speak, um, which was a campaign that ran in Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Um, the founder and, and lead of the campaigns is Nina Fennell, who is a, a survivor advocate and journalist. Um, so, so it, it, this has been a problem that was identified in the Northern Territory and Tasmania previously. The difference is that Tasmania and the Northern Territory, were de- we were dealing with old legislation that needed to be, you know, brought into modern times. In Victoria, we're dealing with legislation that was introduced with bipartisan support in 2020. You know, I, I think it's important to note that not one voice of concern was not one issue was raised by anyone across the political spectrum this is not a labor issue this is this is an issue of you know the entire all elected officials in victoria not doing their job and protecting survivors and you had success in tasmania and northern territory right and um, getting these gag laws reformed do you have any examples of people from these states who have um, now been able to speak about their experience? Yeah, it's primarily been um, women in in other jurisdictions, um, and and you, you, you'll note that we we had the na- the campaign was called "Let Her Speak" because um, it started in Tasmania and it was really about, in particular, one survivor who we can now name as Grace Tame, uh, who was. Uh, was groomed by a school teacher um, and um, and we have seen so we have seen success in that case we've seen um, Grace be able to own her story about the man who abused her Nicholas Bester um, however we also I should add in Tasmania um, those survivors that did sort of manage to get court orders uh, to speak out were all men. So women primarily uh, were, were gagged in, um, in Tasmania. Um, men seem to be the ones who were able to access court orders to speak out. You know, what that 
is representative of is probably a complex issue. Um, but but certainly uh, we do in Victoria see that this this really affects a lot of very public clergy abuse survivors who are men. So it is occurring, uh, you know, it, it's gagging survivors across um, all all genders and um, and across, you know, across the country, really, we've had these issues. So we have seen success in Northern Territory and in Tasmania. We hope that Victoria follows suit. Um, and, and in fact, we hope that Victoria starts to lead the way in this space because there are still some things around the country that we'd like to like to change. And um, how can people listening at home get involved? Well, the best way to get involved in this campaign is to firstly check out all the information you need to know at rasara.org slash let dash us dash speak and contribute if you can to the GoFundMe page to pay for survivors court orders. Um, sharing these news articles, sharing links to um, to this interview and, and others is a great way to make sure that your friends are across it and, and understand what's happening. And I think we, we will be able to, as a community, um, you know, encourage some meaningful reform in this space. Um, and for people who have been impacted by these changes um, and have decided they do want to seek these avenues um, to speak out, um, where can they turn for support or legal help? Um, again, I, I would recommend getting in touch with us at Rasara. So you can email us at admin at rasara.org. Rasara is R-A-S-A-R-A. -A -A. And we can put you in touch with, um, with the campaign leaders and, and hopefully support you through, through the process. But we are hoping for a commitment from the government that means that survivors don't have to worry about this anymore. That was Dr Rachel Bergen discussing the laws which prevent survivors of sexual assault from publicly speaking out about their experiences, and the Let Us Speak campaign, which is pushing to change them. If you or someone you know has been impacted by sexual assault in Victoria, you can call the Sexual Assault Crisis Line Victoria 24-7 for free on 1800 806 292. Next up, Sunnyside, with Something Like Purple. Thank you.
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
Good morning, listeners. This morning I'm really excited to bring a story to you from the far northeast of Western Australia in Kununurra. The Mirabadurung Willow Gadding Language and Culture Centre is an Indigenous-led not-for-profit organisation dedicated to reviving a critically endangered Indigenous language, that of the Mirawong people, spoken by less than 20 individuals in the Mirawong community. Last year, you may recall, was International Year of Indigenous Languages, which highlighted the plight of Indigenous languages around the world. Did you know that every two weeks an Indigenous language is lost? That's two languages every month. Perhaps this was one of the factors prompting the Federal Government of Australia to place our Indigenous languages on the agenda in the recent Close the Gap Agreement. I spoke to Mirawong leader and senior language and cultural consultant, Mr David Neary, and senior linguist, Dr Knut Olowski, from the Miramar Language Centre, to hear exactly how you go about revitalising a language that is critically endangered, and what their response to the Federal Government's Closing the Gap Agreement is, and what their concerns are for funding the programs that they run at the centre. My name is David Neary. I'm a Mirong background. My background is Mirong and the Mirong language. I'm the senior language consultant here at the Miramadawang Wulapkiring. I'm also on the board of the Mirama Council. Mirong, the language, lived on station surrounding Kananara before the township of Kananara. And there was a big movement into Kananara when Kananara was built in the mid-60s, after the referendum, really, 1967 referendum. People started, um, you know, getting pushed off the station and started living in town, and that's where the problem began with the language. From when, when the first lot of people came into the station, you know, you had about probably a couple of hundred people speaking it, and it's down to just a handful now, and they've, um, we set up the language centre, to try and revitalize a lot of that language. The fluent senior Murong people, that um, the language center is an initiative of them. They were the instigator really that um, started the language center with my support. I, I was amongst them too. Just in terms of what David's saying, there's a few people that speak this language. How on earth do you revive it, teach it, uh, grow the, the communication? Um. Well, let's say linguists, when they work with endangered languages, they apply certain scales, will define how endangered a language is, anything from healthy down to severely endangered and critically endangered. Unfortunately, Mirong, like so many other languages in Australia, is in the critically endangered category. And yes, you're right to wonder, uh, how do you bring a language back? One thing that is typically not measured is are the measures that are implemented to revitalize a language. So just to give you an idea of what the Miramar Language Center does, well, I could tell you we're ripping out our arms and legs to bring the language back, but in practical terms, uh, it means we run a number of different programs that will make the language relevant again. One is our early childhood program. We start from uh, toddlers just starting to speak. Um, so we go into childcare centers and play groups and teach them. 
uh, and this goes up to a school age. So we're now working with the local schools and our early childhood program is reaching about 400 kids every week. So here's our new generation of speakers, um, hopefully. And we know the language might not be exactly the same as it was 50 years ago. Uh, there will be simplification uh, and other things that will, will happen to the language, but it is still something that we hope those young people will identify with. And this is so important uh, because language is part of the identity. We can't check it off. Uh, as I said, I was born and raised in Germany. I still speak with a German accent. Um, I have an Australian passport. I live in this country. I've been here for 20 years. Yet, uh, people might still describe me as, oh, that German guy who works at the language center. So that's interesting how language will actually influence who you are and who you are perceived as. Absolutely. And there's also that, that connection that language has to basically everything we do and in our society. So it's quite fundamental. If you think of it, and it was the Commonwealth government themselves uh, who commissioned some research into the link between language and well-being. And the article I put together that I sent to the Prime Minister, by the way, um, lists some of these benefits. And if I may just um, quote from that, Aboriginal people who speak Indigenous languages have markedly better physical and mental health, are more likely to be employed, are less likely to abuse alcohol or be charged by the police. Now, this is something we all want to see. The other outcomes linked to language are improved literacy, English proficiency, learning in all subjects, school attendance, reduction in antisocial behavior. Aboriginal youth in urban and regional areas are more likely to attend school if they speak an indigenous language. So this was not something I've made up. It is part of the um, Our Land, Our Languages report commissioned by the Commonwealth Government. So I think in theory, they have understood the importance of language for the well-being of people and also how it will generally influence the lives of indigenous people. So that brings us to the Close the Gap Agreement, which um, was announced just a month ago. Tell us what the uh, agreement says about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages and what the goals set were. Yes, so um, I'm actually very pleased that languages have made it into the Closing the Gap Agreement. Uh, this is the first time. It was not specifically mentioned before, but now as outcome number 16 of 16, uh, one of the outcomes is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages are strong, supported and flourishing. And this report hopes that by 2031, there is a sustained increase in the number and strength of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages being spoken. And they even list the indicators um, that uh, will apply to that. So ways of how to measure that. I think we still need to talk about how we can measure success in language revitalization, but um, they're definitely on the right track here. David, um, what was your reaction when you first read the report and uh, heard that languages were to be flourishing? 
Well, um, I think what they were saying is is something that really needed in this country, you know, that um, government need to support the language of Indigenous people in, in, in Australia. They, they even said in the report where language play a big part in Indigenous livelihood, probably. Um, just, you know, just using myself as an example, I guess, I have more, I have knowledge on both sides of the scale. And I can go to places and I've been to places and made a lot of changes because of my language input. Um, I, I think if there is someone of Aboriginal descent has one way of doing things, they might not be in that category to be able to support people on both sides. Can you give us some examples of when you feel language has made a difference on the ground? Well, um, we, we have a program here which is called the... It's a ranger program. It's a ranger project. Mm-hmm. Um, Indigenous rangers, they set up. We have one here in Canada which is called the Mirong Rangers. Yes. So a lot of these young fellas that um, they, you know, they come from family group, which is from the local areas, surrounding areas, Mirong and Kajarong. Um, and they come through the language center where we teach them the language. And they, I think they set a good example because a lot of these young fellas growing up in town without the language, they were like, um, didn't know where they really come from. And they wasn't sure to do things that they're not supposed to do because of their origin, probably, or background. But, you know, looking at the rangers now and hearing from the young people now that they really learn a lot of new words that, that was theirs, but they couldn't have learned it, you know, without the language center. So through us teaching them, they, they become more, more proud of who they are now. A proud bunch of fellas now that um, like to carry out and do their job because they know that with that language, learning about the language, they, they're able to identify things, you know, out in the country, the animal, the flora and the fauna. It's something that they weren't able to do um, without the input of the language centre. They wouldn't have known about a lot of these stuff. So it's like a missing um, link. Well, you can say that in a way. So we've sort of closed that down a bit and, you know, made them really who they are and that, you know, give them back their identity as well as to who they really are. You know, they, they use that now and it's something that all rangers should do, should be able to understand about the country itself because that's where the language comes from. It comes from the country, you know. Mm-hmm. And for Aboriginal people, we have to have that knowledge. Um, when we go out to a country and stand out in the bush, the language is all around us. And without that, we're lost, really, without it. But um, to be able to, you know, give that back to the young people, I think it made them more more stronger, in a way, and more proud as to who they are. And what about at the other end with the young children in the childcare centres? What sort of response well, do you uh, get? But um, sort of we've got staff that actually go around and does it. It's mainly made up of female staff. But, you know, hearing some of the parents at, at, in, in around the streets there, it made them think that they want to come and learn the language themselves to understand exactly what the kids are saying. <laughs> but, you know, it's, well, from an Indigenous perspective, if you're on one country, you really 
should learn the language of their land. Yeah. And, you know, we, it wasn't our idea really to, to bring people on our land. You know, it was just something against our will, but it's a chance now for people to really appreciate that, you know. Absolutely. And, and accept that, that language of this land should be spoken here. I mean, no exception if you, you know, go to other countries somewhere, you have to learn their language as well to understand them. But for, you know, to understand Aboriginal people around here too, you really need to speak the language sometime. To really interact with the Indigenous people, you really need to have some kind of a language knowledge really to understand about people. That was Mr David Murray, Senior Language Consultant at the Mirawong Language Centre in Kununurra, Western Australia, talking about the importance of language in building cultural identity and connections to country for the local Mirawong people. We've also been talking to Senior Linguist Dr Knut Olowski about some of the misconceptions Australians might have about Indigenous languages as well as the Centre's response to the Federal Government's Close the Gap Agreement. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. I'm Claudia Craig. I'm going to play a little clip now from a group of young children in Kununurra who are reaping the benefits of the language learning offered by the Mirawong Centre. And stay tuned, we'll return in a moment to hear more from David and Knut about their vision to expand the reach of their programs. And they'll be talking about the important question of how the Australian government can close the gap on Indigenous languages without any new funding. But first, here's the children from the Mirama Nest Language Program singing in language. What beautiful voices. We're back now with Kanut and David from the Mirama Language Centre in Kununurra to hear about their plans for expansion. Well, it's only the beginning. Uh, we're only teaching up to year uh, two at the moment in the public school and up to year five in the other school. Uh, but the ambitious plan is to take it at least to year eight and if possible, go further than that. But let's say in our 10-year plan, we want to reach a thousand kids every week. Wow. But for that to happen, we need to expand, of course. And that can be difficult if your means are limited. So that brings us to the funding aspect of the Close the Gaps plan. Tell us how Indigenous language revival in Australia is currently funded and what will be different under this agreement. Indigenous languages in Australia are typically funded through the ILA program. That's the Indigenous Languages and Arts program. I've taken the liberty of looking into government spending and there's $20 million available for Indigenous languages and arts, which seems like a lot of money. Um, but the number of languages that is supported through $20 million is 150 in Australia alone. And this program shares funds uh, that are also allocated to art centres for certain art projects. So it's not exactly um, 
a few languages getting $20 million. Do you think there are misconceptions amongst the average Australian about Indigenous languages? I'm, I'm certain that there are misconceptions. First of all, uh, many Australians don't even know how many languages there are in Australia. So I said 150 languages are supported by the Indigenous Languages and Arts program. There are actually about 250 languages. Many people believe that there's one Aboriginal language, which is, of course, not, not the case. I have had requests that, that said, can you please translate this for me into Aboriginal language? Now wrote back and said, which of the 250 would you like? <laughs> are there commonalities between the different languages? The short answer is they're very different. A uh, slightly longer answer is obviously neighbouring languages will have things in common. Uh, the Mirong language and the Gajirong language, which is a neighbour, or the Kija language, they have certain things in common, probably along the lines of German and Dutch. Um, but if you went down the highway just about 300 kilometers, the differences would be more like English and French. And I can't see the English and French communicating too well without knowing each other's languages. So the differences are actually quite extreme, all the way from the north of Western Australia down to Perth. Well, this is like English and Russian, really. There's there are no things in common anymore. So as it currently stands, there is no additional funding being allocated? Unfortunately, in the um, comment that I saw by uh, Minister Ken Wyatt, um, he seemed to imply that programs would have to be restructured to be more effective rather than putting more money into um, those closing the gap targets. So overall, I can't see an actual commitment in terms of spending. And also the recent events of the coronavirus crisis have shown us that in emergencies, there is money available if we want to find it. I think Australia's languages have been in emergency for a long time. And we really need to see that change now that we have closing and gap, where the government commits to improving the situation. If they really want to change that situation, I think they will have to dig a bit deeper and fork out more funding support. You mentioned before the benefits of uh, learning one's own language in Indigenous communities. How important do you think that language revival is to achieving the other outcomes that the Closing the Gap Agreement sets? Is a lot of this underpinned by a community who feels connected to its cultural identity through the language literacy? Absolutely. Language is the last on the list, but it may be the most relevant in terms of supporting all those other targets that were set, uh, be it health or aged care, mental health, employment, uh, school attendance, all of that, education. It is all linked with language because if we understand that and if language supports all these other targets, then in the long end, the government will save money because they don't need to invest so much into fixing uh, other issues with a Band-Aid. I think that language, if it's really supported and plays a role for all these other areas, it will actually make a difference. Of course, Merong will always be a minority language, even on their own country. There's no argument about that. They have simply been outnumbered uh, by non-Indigenous people and by Indigenous people from other areas who have moved here. So 
Meron people are now a minority on their own lands, and this will mean it can be challenged for quite a while. But uh, a public language class available to anyone in the community is another thing that we offer. Because let's look at it this way. If you moved to Italy to get a job and work and live there, you would learn Italian. We'd like to think if you move to Miron country, why don't you learn Miron and become part of this country and we'll make friends with people who will speak that language. Uh, I think that would be a wonderful strategy. It would also really raise the profile of indigenous languages if that happened all around the country. Thank you both so much. It's really wonderful to get a perspective from one of the centres as opposed to looking at this from a policy perspective. It's a great opportunity for listeners to, to get a grassroots feel for what actually happens, who's benefiting and the importance of the project. Wonderful. So before we go, um, I had just one thing I was curious about. What temperature is it up in Kalnanara at the moment? In 30s. 35? Yeah, 35. But it's still cold outside for us. But, but from a local mineral perspective, it's right at the end of the cold season now. We're you know, not, not too long for the hot to come. People are starting to sweat now. Just walking down the street, even though it's cold, you're starting to sweat in the you know, clothing. I guess you've got a blue sky as well. Always. Yeah. I think I'd prefer to be in your cold season than ours. <laughs> Any final much. farewells in language? Why? Warang, can you hear that? I can hear that. Would you like to translate? That is Warang, mean um, everything all good and it's over now. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, when you give me a thumbs up, that's Warang, finish, all good. That was Mr. David Neary and Dr. Knut Olowski from the Miramar Language and Cultural Centre in Kananara, Western Australia. If you'd like to access the paper regarding Knut's concerns with the government funding model for Australian Indigenous languages, you can head straight to their website, www.mirimaa.org.au forward slash news forward slash. And you'll find the link to download the paper at the bottom of the page after the letter to the Prime Minister that the centre has written. Of course, you can also express your views on this important issue by contacting your local MP or writing to the Office of the Prime Minister yourself. And we'll keep you posted when the centre receives a response from the Prime Minister's office to hear what they have said. Now here's a song in another Indigenous language, the Yanua language. It's one of the traditional languages from the top end of Australia, near the Gulf of Carpentaria, and it's sung by Shelley Morris. Shelley learned the language from her elders when she connected with the country of her grandmother, and together with 11 of her family, she created an album celebrating language and culture, and this is a song from that album, Saltwater People by Shelley Morris. Wale wale ango, lele anta wiriara, lianyua. Wale wale ango, lele anta wiriara, lianyua. 
Hi there, 3CR listeners. This is Shane Howard, the Goanna fella. These are strange and tough times, and a lot of people are doing it really hard. But they will pass. Be kind to yourself and others. Buy local, and like 3CR, support local businesses and local artists. Don't be afraid to reach out for help if you need it, and don't hold back giving it if you can. Thanks to 3CR for being their collective voice. I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR.
Thanks for choosing Monday Breakfast to start your week. Stay tuned for Women on the Line and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening.